So, this evening, <clears throat> I'm going to say a few words about the, what we often call the second foundation of mindfulness. I prefer to translate it as the second way of establishing awareness. <clears throat> and the second way of establishing awareness is by focusing on what is called in the ancient language Vedana, Vedana. And um, Vedana is a number of places, is a really a central element of the Buddha's understanding of life, understanding of the path to freedom. Vedana is a pivotal issue, a pivotal experience to bring attention to. It's kind of a tipping point for our lives. And to really understand Vedana well helps us understand the tipping point and understand how to negotiate that tipping point or to negotiate the fork. There's like a path, you know, there's a path in the woods and there's a fork. So you know which fork to take, left or right. As an introduction, before getting to Vedana, I uh, wanted to evoke uh, for you a teaching from the Indian Vipassana teacher named Munindra, who said that if it's not simple, it's not mindfulness. It's a wonderful little saying to carry with you in your back pocket. If it's not simple, it's not mindfulness. So if you're into the engineering approach to mindfulness or excessively, you know, analytical or trying to do complicated things with your practice, remember that saying, if it's not simple, it's not mindfulness. And one of the simple ways of practicing that I use, especially when my mind is <clears throat> more <clears throat> more unruly than I wish it to be for the purposes of mindfulness, to be present for what's going on, thoughts going off in full and way, is I'll do <clears throat> use a, a, a one-word practice and I say to myself very quietly in my mind, I say the word here, H-E-R-E. <clears throat> Not like you would tell a dog a command, but more like a part of, you know, maybe there's a wonder, it's kind of here. There's a wonder, kind of a wondrous thing here, what's here? And I say here to remind myself this is where I am and then take whatever moments I can find that are available to just recognize what's happening here, whatever way that appears. So if my mind is thinking a lot and then with a sense of wonder, I, say, I just go, wow. This mind is thinking. This is what a thinking mind is like. A lot of energy, a lot of thoughts jumping around, a lot of maybe emotions connected to it. I just kind of, and the word here is a word for me of a practice of allowing things to be as they are. I'm not trying to do anything, corral the mind. I'm not trying to get focused. I'm not really even trying to be mindful in some popular way of what mindfulness is. I'm just kind of like here with what is. And then if I do that for a while, what usually what happens to me is some of the, the centrifugal forces of thinking that kind of spins me out, 
begins to abate, begins to quiet down. And at some point, after it quiets down for a while, then um, <clears throat> I'm able to then drop that little practice and then I can do the practice I'm doing, maybe focusing my breath. And part of the reason why that centrifugal force of thinking, that drive to think, abates, is that the, the drive to think is fueled by our giving attention to our thinking. So as we kind of like feed it. So there's something about stepping back and clearly seeing, oh, this is what's happening. That's stepping back. Then the attention is not being fed into what we're thinking about. It's kind of stepping back and the attention is feeding our capacity to be aware. And so then the food goes someplace else. So I just say here. Um, the, um, now there's two sides to here, the practice of here. Uh, you can divide it if you wish. There is what's happening and these, the, the awareness that knows what's happening. So if I ring the bell, there's the bang and the ringing that we hear. But then there's also, in order for you to be hear that bell, you have to be aware, you have to register, it has to come to you. And that other half of the equation is you. There's half the equation, is half of what's going on is the bell's ringing. The other half is you're the recipient of that, you have to hearing that. And your half of hearing that is your subjective involvement in the act of hearing. Often when we are concerned with something, focusing on something, we're more focused on what we're concerned about, that half of the experience, than we are about um, the nature of the experience itself, the nature of hearing itself, or even less so, the, uh, the nature of the awareness that allows it to be received and held. And what we're trying to do, one of the things we're trying to do with satipatthana is to heighten awareness, strengthen the capacity to establish awareness as a strong kind of presence, strong capacity of being so that it's liberating us, so it frees us. When we're attached to things, preoccupied with things, obsessed with things, awareness tends to get contracted or the sense of the luminosity and the clarity of awareness tends to get lost in our kind of concern with whatever's going on. But as we can step back from our preoccupation concern, the luminosity, the clarity, the wakefulness of awareness stands, begins to stand out more in highlight. So this simple practice of saying here can lead sometimes to uh, begin appreciating that here there's a, a this amazing thing, a human being who has the capacity to be aware, to be attentive, to receive, to register what's going on. And that, that registering that awareness, that field of awareness that takes it in, can sometimes um, be open or clear or awake or a nice little energy to it, aware. And so the Satipatthana practice is a practice of strengthening that capacity. So even though it looks like in the Satipatthana we're paying attention to all these objects, things, 
the purpose of focusing on the object is to strengthen this capacity to be aware. And so if we hang out in that place where we allow our experience to register for us, their lived experience of the moment, come into us, it can only come into us through the external world, only through the five senses, through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, and the tactile sense. Our inner world can only be, you know, that the Buddhist psychology says is that there's like a door or a window, a sense door inside that perceives the inner life. So if you're thinking something, you have to perceive it before you can react to it. So you might think, you know, <clears throat> sushi is, rice is great. And uh, so you think, oh, sushi, that's a thought that arises, you perceive it, and then you start writing a cookbook. So, but you first have to perceive the thought to go off into your cookbook world. So there's an inner, inner uh, sense door that perceives that. So the idea is that our, in the lived moment, in the present, everything we know about the world comes through one of these six door, doors. Once it's come in, then we can live in fantasy. We can live in our abstract ideas of what is and projections of the world and all that. But it all begins with the, what comes right here. And there's something about beginning to stay present for the immediacy of how the sense world, the world comes into the sense doors that supports the growth of awareness. Growth of this kind of, and as awareness becomes stronger, uh, we become freer. We don't tend not to be so easily caught up with what's going on. And so satipatthana is uh, the way of establishing awareness is a, 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 the, the sutta that talks about this describes a process or series of processes that lead to freedom, to awakening. And it's very important to understand it's a process. And, uh, and you'll see as I describe it that we're involved in a, a series of processes that unfold and deepen for us as we go through it. And, um, and as we, by the time we get to the end, the idea is that, you know, at least the practice, not my talk, is that, um, is that uh, it brings liberation. And liberation is possible, and it's a pretty radical thing, transformative thing, like John talked about. And uh, the, the cliche, the joke, is, is liberation is not what you think it is. Because it's not really about thinking exactly. But also, you can't, it's very hard to conceive of what, of what freedom is, because it's so other, so different from the usual ways in which we understand ourselves, the usual way in which we orient ourselves to the world. The usual way is often very, with a very fixed attachment to self. Very fixed, everything's kind of from the point of view of me, myself, and mine. So much of it is. And, uh, and it's kind of inconceivable to kind of, if, you know, to see, to imagine anything else. Even to, people don't even know, the fish doesn't, don't even see the water they swim in, they say. We don't see the concept of self, the attachments to self, uh, our attachment to clinging we have, because it's just, it's the water we swim in. So, you know, so we don't even know that, that there's an issue or that's where the issue is. So awakening is really a radical, it's really different than what business life as usual, 
while at the same time, um, life doesn't change. So everything stays, everything's good stays. So you don't have to worry too much. So, um, so there's this process. And the simplest way to understand the logic of this process is to start with the very first exercise in Satipatthana. The very first exercise has to do with breathing. And uh, first, first, the first part of it is just to be aware of yourself breathing. And then it says, uh, as you breathe, experiencing the whole, um, the whole, um, what's called the the, um, the um, bodily formation. The bodily formation is all aspects of our body that are there because of mental activity. So if I am uh, scared, my shoulders go up. That's a mental. That's a that's a physical formation. Shoulders are not a physical formation, but the the tight shoulders are because my mind is creating that. So all the ways the mind, the activities of the mind that affect how the body is. Abraham Lincoln is supposed to have said that by the time a person is forty, they're responsible for their face. So I don't know, but look at his face. And so, um, um, so you know, we have we put tremendous, you know, how our holding patterns, the reactions to the world, you know, it's a lot of stuff goes on in our body that belongs to how we react and what we do. So the the second part of this is to experience that whole physical body, the formation that you know, basically experience your body fully. And then the third step is to um, relax the body. So relax the, ment- the, this, this, the body formations, all the ways in which our body is held and tense and tight from how we live our life, relax and soften. So those are the three steps. To know the breath, to really experience it fully, to feel it fully, and then relax. And those three steps are very nice kind of uh, simple formulation for how to do this kind of practice we do, one way to do it. First, recognize what's happening. Then take the time to experience it fully. Take it in, really get to know it. And then, um, then relax, soften. And that's kind of the direction that the logic or the process, the path the Satipatthana is going through is going through that direction, going to recognize, really experience something, and then relax or settle or quiet, quiet or still what's going on. Stilling of the mental movements of the mind. And this movement of stilling and quieting is seen, um, so we saw that already on the first exercise. And the second exercise is know your uh, basic posture you're in. The first one is the most active, walking. Less active is standing. More restful is sitting. And most restful is lying down. That's the direction we're going. To, to, be, to have things, not necessarily sleeping and laying down all the time, but uh, that's kind of the movement towards things becoming quieter, the stilling of things. If you, um, and so the first part of the body exercises <clears throat> have to do with tuning in to what the things that we do, the intentional activities that we do with our body. 
And then there's a shift. We, John talked about um, the 32 parts of the body, the elements and the corpse. And this is taking, beginning to deconstruct the usual coarse ideas we have about who, what the body is. And many of us will live in very kind of generalized ideas of my body and we suffer a lot because of it. To, you know, my body is too much this, too little that. All these comparative thoughts we have about our bodies and ideas of our bodies, our beauty of our bodies, our bodies, right? And so rather than kind of taking the body as a whole, which we're too easy to get caught up in concept of God, body and all the associated meanings of that, we begin breaking it down into the different parts of the body. And as if that's not enough, because that's still a little bit conceptual, it's kind of a visualization of the parts of your body, then the next is to break it down even more into the elements, the four elements. And if that is not enough, then uh, you break, uh, the, the whole corpse meditation, those elements just kind of begin to decay and dissolve and blow away in the wind if you, leave, you know, leave the body just there. And uh, so there's this movement towards things becoming dispersed and quiet. And it's a little bit like in meditation. I, I don't think I want to compare it too much like a corpse. But uh, when your mind gets quieter and quieter in meditation, the conceptual mind that thinks, that overlays our ideas on top of, so, so much of how we experience our body and ourselves in the world are concepts, ideas. The fish doesn't see the water it swims in. We don't see the concepts that we swim in. But even the idea of a body is, um, you know, is a concept and the idea of a hand is a concept. And so when the mind gets quieter and quieter and we stop engaging in these kinds of things, then the idea of the feeling, the sense of a body begins to kind of get softer and softer. At some point, the sense of a body kind of has no boundaries to the body. And then sometimes the body, sense of a body just kind of disappears. So kind of like the corpse, you know, decays more and more and disappears. So that's the kind of direction it's going. Um, we, haven't, well, we haven't gotten to this yet, but um, so those are the six body exercises. And then there's um, the Vedana, which we'll get to. After that, there's six more exercises. And the next first one is uh, that of the mind states. And these are also divided between those which are much more active mental states, which are lust. I think it's hard to have lust and have a quiet mind. Hate. It's hard to have hate and have a quiet mind or delusion, mind spinning around. So those are kind of very active states. The next uh, ones that are listed are, are uh, a big mind, to use a kind of Zen term, expanded mind. Um, uh, consciousness, awareness starts to getting, when you're no longer preoccupied and caught by things, awareness starts getting bigger. People have the experience of the mind being quite big and large. Some people only become aware of that when their mind is relaxed and present in a nice way. And then they have a really juicy thought that really concerns them and they lock onto it. And then they realize everything got dark and contracted and tight again. And then you know, they lost the sense of clarity and openness and largeness to the awareness. And, um, and then a concentrated mind. Concentrated mind is quite still, still mind. And a liberated mind, it's, it talks about in the text, liberated mind is a mind that is imperturbable. Has, you know, it's not, not affected by things, it's just... So here also we have this movement from 
activity, the movements of the mind, that defining, the, defining the mind state, to the mind becoming still and quiet. Same thing with the last foundation, where we start with activities of mind, the hindrances, you have to be pretty active in the mind to have a hindrance. You're doing something when you have a hindrance. The, you know, the, and so you're involved in activity. The next one has to do with clinging, the aggregates, clinging to the aggregates, like clinging is an activity. And the third one has to do with, um, uh, you know, I talked about all the sense doors, you know, the things that come in. Uh, it's called a knot. We get knotted up. It's a technical word, knot, knotted up uh, with what comes in. So if I hear a sound, I get knotted up with that. I get caught up in the sound. Someone comes, you know, I used to get knotted up on retreat because some people had this um, lumberjack approach to entering meditation hall. And there was a guy sitting next to me. He would always come in late. He would come in like a lumberjack. He had a Velcro jacket. And it was even five or ten minutes into the sitting, and uh, he must have been running a marathon because it took him five or ten minutes to stop breathing heavily. So I tended, to, for, for quite a while, for many weeks in the retreat, I got knotted up in that. I got entangled with that. Until finally, I stopped entangling myself, knotting myself up in that, and it, just, just, it was just sound. And I thought, I realized that the problem is not with his sound and his approach to entering the meditation hall. That, that's not a problem. The problem is only, the problem is only where, where it can be fixed, solved. And it can only be solved was how I was getting knotted up in it. So getting knotted up in the experience is an activity. When the activities of the mind quiet down, the movements of the mind quiet down, then there are seven qualities of mind that come into prominence that are not exactly activities because we're not like doing them or intentioning and attending them or uh, they more come out of the quiet, settled mind. And those are the seven factors of awakening. And then the last one is the Four, uh, the four Noble Truths, <clears throat> which uh, has to do all about letting go and the seizing of the clinging and the holding we have, the complete settling, seizing, the complete stilling of the mind. So, so you, I hope you can see there's this pattern of going from activity to stillness. But not the stillness which is hard and tight and frightening, but a stillness which is soft and gentle and, and uh, nourishing, nurturing. But, and as it becomes stiller and softer, then it's easier for the mind to begin to let go more deeply. And you want to cultivate, and you want to, it's very important to cultivate a soft, loving mind so that liberation can happen. And liberation can't happen with a mind that's tight and fixated and hard. People who try to get liberated when the mind is hard and fixated usually just break it. And um, I, I like to liken it to when my son was in kindergarten, uh, once a week they worked with um, beeswax to make little model figures. And uh, when they got the beeswax, uh, and when the time for beeswax happened, they would take it off the shelf and it was cold, hard. And the only thing you can do with hard beeswax is break it. You know, so you don't... What, you do, what they would do in class is they'd put the, the kids would put the beeswax in the palm of their hand, 
and then they would cover it with the other hand and the teacher would tell them a story. And when the story was done, the beeswax was warm and then they could shape it into something beautiful. So how can you hold yourself that way? Your brittleness, your hardness, your fixity, your, you know, how can you hold your heart, your mind? To hold it gently, lovingly. Let it soften. And I'd like to think of this Satipatthana practice of mindfulness, of awareness, holding things in awareness, is partly a practice of taking your time to let things soften by holding them, just being there with them. The kind of frontal assault in our experience usually doesn't work very well in practice, but just kind of just be there, be present. Be present, be there with it, lovingly softly. So the mind, the heart has a chance to soften. So the Vedana, the, with the instructions on that, follows the same pattern as the other foundations, that pattern of going from activity to more like stillness. And I'll try to explain that. But to get a sense of how pivotal Vedana is for the Satipatthana enterprise, I want to say that um, this text that we use is kind of like the, the foundational text for the Vipassana movement, the, the Satipatthana Sutta, is a very unusual sutta text in all the discourses of the Buddha. It's, I mean, if that's the only one you've ever been introduced to, you think that's what the Buddha did. But it's very strange. Uh, strange is not the word, but it's very unique. Nothing like it. Nothing, there's no text that is that carefully constructed in such a formulaic, almost arithmetic way. There's, a, there's an opening, there's an exercise, there's a refrain. There's an exercise, there's a refrain. There's an exercise, there's a refrain. Exercise and refrain. 13 times it has these things. And then it has a close. And you know, it's very carefully constructed. And if you look how it's constructed, on either side of Vedana, there are six exercises. And Vedana is right in the middle. It's the tipping point. It's a transition point. And it's a transition point between the body, which is the first foundation, verse six is all about the body, to this last six, which is all about the mind. And that transition happens at that with Vedana. And Vedana, um, so now, what is Vedana? I apologize for those of you who have never heard this before. The word Vedana comes from the word to know. And there's a whole series of words in Pali that belong to the word to know, like Vedana. Like the Rig Veda, Veda means to, to know or knowledge, same, same word. Um, the uh, uh, vedi, uh, vedyati, can also mean to experience. To know, to experience, uh, to have knowledge, are all kind of very closely related in the words that are used. And vedana um, means, it's a, way of, it's, it's a way of knowing. And it's a way of knowing, are, uh, it's a way of knowing, receiving, taking in what our experience is. Or it's the impact that our experience have as we know it. 
And so remember I talked about the six sense doors. Everything we know about the world comes through the six sense doors. As, the, as there's a sound, there's a sound of the bell, but then it's how that bell is known. It's different, how it's known is different from the sound. How something is seen is different from the object. They say that bees, when they look at flowers, see flowers very differently than we see the flowers because I guess they can see ultraviolet light or something. Um, we see in a certain way how we see. And uh, one of the ways to see you know, how we experience something um, is subjective is the th- kind of things that we uh, are, that are acquired taste. I remember the first time that I drank some coffee, I thought it was awful. I just thought, how can people drink this kind of stuff? It's like dishwashing water or something. And now I like it. They make coffee better now. Or I've changed. So this, you know, the subjective experience has taken in a different way. And it's quite uh, important to realize the tremendous role that you have in what you do with your experience once it comes in through the sense doors. It's, you're not an innocent bystander. And you're not a you're not a unbiased observer of experience what goes on. You, things come in and you, we, all of us, we experience it, take it in a certain way. So Vedana has to do not about, it's not something inherent in the experience, that, but rather it's the way that that experience is registered here inside of us. And that has a subjective element to it sometimes. And so it's how, how something is known within us. That's kind of what it means. In the Satipatthana Sutta, how things are known are divided into three classes. And we tend, we tend in, in, in our scene to limit Vedana only to what's pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. That's what Vedana is. No, Vedana is not that. Vedana means how things are known. But as you know things, they can be experienced in these three different categories. They can be experienced as a, as a pleasant experience, an unpleasant experience, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. But remember, it's not only in the experience that's unpleasant. You have a role to play, whether it's experienced pleasant or unpleasant. You're not a neutral bystander. So we begin taking responsibility for our part. That's why we want to kind of stay there and take it in, be patient, so we can start teasing apart and seeing what's there. It, gave, it can give you um, one of the first moments I had of really appreciating Vedana was when I was practicing on retreat in Burma. And I'd been practicing a little while, so my mind was settled and my mindfulness was stronger than it probably had ever been in my life. And I walked into my teacher's um, house to do my interview with, practice discussion with him. And as you walked in, there was a little altar just inside the door on the right. And as I walked in, I, I saw that there was a Buddha, a little Buddha, 10 inch high Buddha, that hadn't been there before. And, uh, and what I saw, very quickly, just like rapid fire, 
I saw, I saw the Buddha, I saw it was pleasant, and I wanted it. <laughs> and what I wanted was more of that pleasure. And we can be just as rapid fire, but we see something, it's, we experience it or evaluate it as unpleasant, and we don't want it. We're for and against the experience. We like it and don't like it. And it can happen so fast that um, we think that, um, you know, we don't even see where the liking, the wanting comes from. It's just, I just want this. And sometimes there's a confusion, uh, because we don't see so clearly, uh, we then, after that, sometimes we'll justify why why we want it. And sometimes I think huge political philosophies arose just because someone didn't like something. It was unpleasant for them. <laughs> and, uh, and they just didn't want the unpleasant. But you know, we don't, we're not trained to look at just at the simple beginning, where it all begins. By tuning into the Vedana, we're t- tuning into where it begins, the complicated life that we have. Right there at the sense door, where things happen immediately here and now. So if I ring the bell, you could find that either pleasant or unpleasant. If that was pleasant, uh, you might start thinking about how you're going to ask Spirit Rock if you can buy it. If you found that unpleasant, you might think about how you're going to write a letter to the executive director about how Gail needs to learn how to hit the bell better. Uh, and, you know, and why it's important for teachers to be better trained and the teacher training is all kinds of issues, right? And, um, and pretty soon it's the, all these big issues that are important. It, not, taking it, not remembering it was really just a very simple thing. It was just pleasant or it was unpleasant. It's possible to, to come back to basics. And that's kind of the, the tendency of why we want you to come into the present moment. So we can come back to basics where it all begins. Where, where it comes into our experience and where it registers. So we can see what's going on there. And if we can see the Vedana, that, you know, how it's known when it first comes in, um, and we can see that part of the Vedana, which is the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, it can give you a tremendous power over the situation in this way. That uh, you could be in an amazingly complicated event. You could be at, you know, at, um, I don't know what to, try not to bring up outside world things here month-long retreat, so. You could wander down the road when they start doing the construction down here. You know, it's like noises and trucks and beeping and yelling and banging and it's like all this stuff, you know, and, and, um, and so you're kind of overwhelmed by it. But then you can say, this is an unpleasant situation. And, and, and just recognize that this is unpleasant. It's just unpleasant. Rather than analyzing, what do I have to do? I have to fix it? Or am I supposed to get earplugs? Or should I run away? Or should I go talk to the foreman? Or you know, which of the sounds is it that I'm finding most difficult? And I know you can get so complicated with it. There's something very simple about just recognizing this is unpleasant. And there's power in it because in simply that recognition is, oh, I know how to be present with unpleasant. It's just unpleasant. I don't have to make it a big story and a big event and just unpleasant. Same thing with uh, if it's pleasant. It's just pleasant. 
as opposed to, you know, wanting it or making it all complicated. So there's something about helping us, the power of simplicity that can be found by seeing how it is at the very beginning, when it just begins our experience. Oh, it's pleasant and it's unpleasant, or it's neither pleasant or not, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So that's the basic idea of Vedana, mindfulness of Vedana. However, uh, this, this uh, the process I described earlier of going from activity to stillness is also found in this exercise here. Because in the text, the Buddha makes a distinction between, it's a little bit complicated, so I, I don't know if I can say it simply enough. So there are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral Vedana. But then there's a second division. There's those Vedana which are sa, I'll use a Pali word, I'm sorry, sa amisa, and those Vedana which are near amisa. So the, all three of, the, so the sa amisa can be pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and the near amisa can be pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So, there, so, there, so the category of Vedana is now divided into two classes. The Sa-Amisa, Sa-Amisa is, um, it literally means of the flesh. The Nira-Amisa means not of the flesh. Now remember that Vedana as a second foundation fits right in between the six exercises of the body and the six exercises of the mind. And now within that exercise, there's a division between that having to do with the body and that I like to call it that having to do with the mind. So to distinct, and this is a very important distinction. This is, a, this is really where this transition point is that moves us now, really begins moving us towards the path of freedom. The, the, the whole thing about the body is part of the path of freedom but that's more kind of like, I don't know what to call it exactly, but, um, but there's, a, there's a transition here to the inner life, to the life of the heart. So the, the sa-amisa with the flesh is the experiences we have that are pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, what we can know that occurs because of um, our senses are stimulated by the world. So if there's a sound, we're stimulated, and that sound can be pleasant or unpleasant. Someone gives us a massage, and we're being stimulated in that field may be pleasant. Someone punches us, that's an activity, and that we feel that, and that feels unpleasant. So we get a lot of sense data coming in, which is kind of like the more active part of the world coming towards us. So that it's a whole sensual world that is stimulated. That of the heart, when, when that quiets down and we're not focused on that, we're no longer focused on sensuality and as something to be stimulated and benefit get and kind of, but rather um, as we get more settled and more settled, we become more aware of the quality of the inner life, the quality of our heart, the quality of awareness. And that is the transition point that moves us into the last foundations of mindfulness. 
So our inner life can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Independent of what goes on with the sense world, we can have the sense outer world, you know, can be stimulating us in unpleasant ways or pleasant ways, and it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to ruffle or affect our inner life, our heart. We could come late to supper and there's no food left at all. An unpleasant experience. And the heart can be at ease and at peace. We could go to supper first and they serving, I don't know what, ice cream. Chocolate, that's the one. That people like chocolate. And, um, and, and the inner, inner life could get all riled up or it could stay peaceful and at ease. The inner life is a life of the heart. Isn't is not the life that gets? It's part of activity in the usual way. So I mean, I mean the process is to go from logic is to go from activity to stillness, soft, vital, radiant stillness. And so as we come into now to the inner life, we start tuning in. What's the quality of this inner life like? What's the quality of the heart? How does your heart like? Is your heart agitated? Is your heart at peace? Is a heart a warm place, a comfortable place? Is a heart uncomfortable and hard? Um, what's the quality of the heart like? There's no sense in this practice any need to judge anything you find there or f- to feel anything's wrong, but rather, I, as I say, just hold it like you'd hold a beeswax in your hand. So if you find that your heart is brittle or very tender or afraid, just hold it in your beeswax, you know, like beeswax. Just hold it and let it warm and relax. Just let it soften. But what does it take for the heart? So to begin to recognize what's, what's going on in the inner life. And there's a lot of people who are fo- very focused on the external life. Uh, being, uh, you know, getting the sens- their sensuality or getting their their sensual comforts all, uh, you know, just right. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with, you know, having a, having a very challenging relationship with my meditation cushion. Because it was soft when I first sat down. But it got rock hard after the end of the, sit- near the, end of the sitting. And so, and so it's all, well, if I, only if I get the softer cushion, then I'm certainly be on the path to enlightenment. You know, if it's only has, it has to do with the cushion, they have to get the right cushion, I have to get, you know, the right tush, and just to get it all, to get those sensations have to be just right. And that's kind of being caught up in that sensual world, or the sense world, in a sense, where you get activated. And some people are very focused on being comfortable, making it, everything physically comfortable in that way, and getting everything arranged just right. If you're only free, when you're comfortable, you're not free. That's a very important thing to remember. If you really want freedom, if that's what you really want to, want to experience, what you want to find for yourself, you have to learn how to be free when things are uncomfortable, when things are unpleasant. Otherwise, your freedom is not going to count for much. So this constant negotiating, trying to make things pleasant and comfortable and avoid what's uncomfortable, keeps you 
can keep a person kind of locked up in the world of the, of the flesh. The world of the heart is a different world. The world, the quality of your heart, quality of your inner life, the quality of your inner mind is probably the most important resource you have. And the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen, I've been all over the world, the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen is uh, a pure heart. And I am confident that each of you has it. Completely confident. I see it, many of you. But you don't see it. But it's there waiting for you. This inner beautiful inner life. And so, as we practice, as awareness becomes stronger, awareness is an aspect of the heart. And as awareness gets bigger and softer and clearer and more luminous, the qualities of the heart begins to stand out more clearly. And that quality of the heart becomes more pleasant. And there's a whole, the whole slew of very pleasant experiences that arise, not because we're being stimulated by, through the senses, but it's more like it's arising like a spring um, it's, uh, the, the image is that of a spring under a lake and the spring is flowing water up into the lake, refreshing it. It's like this beautiful kind of emergent quality of goodness, emergent quality of well-being, of happiness, of joy. And so the joy of concentration, for example, joy of meditation, the lightness, the softness that can happen is not a... Um, it's not of the flesh, even though you say, well, it's happening in my body, where else is it going to be? But it's not because the flesh is being stimulated. It's because it's just flowing, it's emerging. So it's a very different kind of pleasure than the pleasure of, you know, you know more chocolate. I don't want to, you know, the chocolate's good. And, um, and so to begin appreciating this very simple, Hope maybe beginning very simple the pleasure of the heart, the pleasure that emerges, the emergent pleasure, emergent good feelings, emergent sense of well-being that can happen as we practice. It doesn't happen all the time; it comes and goes. But as it emerges, it's one of the things that we bring our attention to. Not only can you bring your attention to it, but let yourself be nourished by it even if it's just very rudimentary and small. Take it in, be fed by it, be nourished by it. Let it be the, the warm hands <clears throat> that kind of soften the mind, the heart more. So as we sit here and get stiller and quieter, sooner or later you might begin feeling something nice, a little hint that comes up. It's feeling, it could be a simple feeling of contentment, feeling of gladness, feeling of delight, feeling of relief just a little bit, feeling of stillness and quiet. I wish that you could, all of you have access as you sit here to feelings of well-being. That you, 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 you guys are so much better than you realize you are. And the way you would know it is uh, if I send you on an errand into downtown San Francisco, or to, even better, if I send you on an errand to Ikea, Then you'd, oh boy, now, then you'd understand. Wow, I was really in a nice place. Wow, I didn't know. 
So I don't know if you can believe me, but you're in a good place. But it's hard to see, partly because we swim sometimes in a different ocean. We swim in the water of our concerns and our fears and our stories and, you know, our abstractions. And um, so that's why we're trying to come back here, here, here. So it's a journey. So the Satipatthana is a journey. It's a journey from activity to radiant stillness. And in that radiant stillness, we can let go. In that radiant stillness, there's no more any need to hold on to anything, to cling to anything. It's an acti- going from activity where the mind is restless, or the heart is restless, the heart is looking outside of itself, the heart is trying to figure things out and get things and want things and make things right, until the heart, the heart is at home in itself. And when the heart is at home in itself, then the heart can dissolve. When the heart is at home in itself, it can just be the last activity which just kind of dissolves, goes. And what are you going to do without your heart? You don't need it then because you're free. So it's a journey. It's a journey from here to here. So you're not really going anywhere, but there is a journey. It's a journey so you can really be at peace and at rest and content and happy here, where you've always been. So I'll end with little saying, teaching, that kind of touches on a part of this, being at home, the heart being at home in itself, settled on itself. Suzuki Roshi, Zen master in San Francisco, told his student Mel Weitzman, just to be alive is enough. Mel Weitzman was my teacher, and he told me, Gil, Just to be alive is enough. And now I'm your teacher for this two weeks or this month. And now I'm going to tell you. Just to be alive is enough. May you enjoy your life. So let's take a... A couple of minutes to gather in and settle the heart. (laughs) 